Our Father God, thank you. You are a gracious and compassionate and loving God. Thank you that you are a missional God, uh, that you have spoken into the world that has rejected you. Uh, thank you for your word that reveals who you are and reveals the unfolding plan of your um, wonderful um, mission endeavour to save the world in through your Son, our Lord Jesus. And um, we pray uh, that you would speak to our, our mind, through our minds to our hearts, really um, work deeply in our lives today through your word as it's read and as it's preached. And please accomplish all you intend for it today in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Meredith. Reading from Matthew, chapter 28, 16 to 20. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Wow, I'm up early today. Maybe that's good. <laughs> Maybe you're thinking, ooh, <laughs> he's got more time if he's up early. Um, my name's Craig Broman. Thanks so much for having me here. I love the trip down today. Um, it's a beautiful time of the year to be travelling from Adelaide down to such a beautiful part of the world. Um, and uh, what we're looking at today is... Um, the end of Matthew's Gospel, and that's quite a good thing given that you're going to be moving into the book of Acts next week, uh, looking at the, uh, how the church develops after they take on the commission of Matthew 28. Now, I have two shameless advertisements to give you just before we start. So the first is I bought some, some things that I've got more information about uh, workplace uh, mission and they're on the table outside when you go. So a more general thing uh, about what Engage Work Faith is set up to do and how it tries to help people in their work. Um, and a second thing about how to partner with us. Um, so I've had a number of people who have said to me who have hit retirement, where was this ministry when I was in the workplace? <laughs> um, and I think... Uh, you, you may feel the same if you're retired, think, oh, goodness, this is a good thing, but it's a bit too late for me. Um, think about partnering with us because it's, it's trying to help the next generation who are coming out of um, school and hitting the workforce to be very agile missionaries and to be able to hold their ground in often what is a hostile setting and increasingly a hostile setting. The other thing is... 
the engaging with ease that I'm going to be doing with you, uh, for those of you who can come, after the service today, I promise you it's one hour. So I'm used to people only having a short break on their lunch and things like that at work, so I, I know that you know, I can't hold you longer than that hour. The other thing is it's not a magic bullet, what we're going to be doing this, uh, between 12 and 1. Uh, what we're going to be doing is not giving you another technique to go and try on people. Uh, we're going to be thinking about the whole philosophy of how you can do evangelism naturally using the way God's wired you and put you together and thinking about your relationships and your connections. So just breathe a sigh of relief that I'm not going to be asking you to go off and implement something that may feel really clunky for you. Um, the idea is we're going to try and do things in a natural way um, and think about how that can be sustained over a long period of time. Okay, two shameless advertisements over. Earlier this year, I went on holidays and I went to the Victorian Alps. So you can see them there. Um, there was a walking trail in the valley that we were in and my wife and I were on this walking trail and we got to a sign and it said, Mount Feathertop, 12 kilometres, 1,900 metres. And uh, then it said... Um, there was a sign there and it said, only for experienced alpine walkers. Um, area subject to sudden weather changes, whiteout, snow, gale force winds, freezing temperatures. So my wife and I are standing there, we're looking at the sign. My thought bubble in my head is, wow, we could do this. <laughs> and my wife knows this <laughs> and just turned to me and said, we are not going up that mountain today. <laughs> um, well, uh, in the end, we got up to Mount Hotham in the car and it was a whiteout and it was raining and it was freezing temperatures, so just as well. But what is it with this fascination that we have with mountains? I'm going to check your understanding of mountains and particularly the kids who are here today as an added incentive. If you can guess what the mountain is, We've got a Kit Kat for you, okay? So, uh, I, don't, I don't know whether you're a kid. <laughs> um, how about we make this 12 and under, all right? Oh, 12 and under's coming in now, good. Okay, so the idea is put up your hand. Now, who's going to spot? You're gonna, can you spot the person who puts up their hand first? Uh, that would be great, all right. So, you see the mountain, you've got to guess which mountain it is. Here we go. Uh, what did you think? Yeah, yeah. Who was? Yeah, the girl in the group. Yeah, sorry. Oh, terrific! Give that person a Kit Kat. Oh, okay. Next mountain. Oh, that's an adult. Oh. Okay. No. Do you want to have one more go? Mount. Uh, no, it's the Matterhorn. Okay, in Switzerland. All right, next. <laughs> yeah, that's Mount Fuji. All right. Good, good going there, guys. Maybe the next one. 
Now, this next one is tricky, so we'll give this to an adult to have a go at. Uh, maybe a kid will know this. It's also in Japan. Off we go. It's not Mount Fuji. Anyone been for a holiday in Japan? Okay, it's called Mount Takao. And it's the most visited mountain in the world. 2.6 million visitors a year. I think because there's a bullet train that goes right behind, you know, near it. Next one. Uh, what did you think? Uh, who did you think got? Yep. No. Yep. No. Or I. Do you think you know this? You got this. Yep. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Maybe you can share the next one with someone. All right. For the younger members here, okay, so someone who's, someone who's under 10, all right, see what you can work out. What's this one? Yeah? Mount Lofty, yes. Okay, all right, I think we just ran out of Kit Kats. <laughs> okay, a cursory glance of world history will tell you that we do have this fascination with mountains. Um, they're the great intersection points between heaven and earth. So if you think in the Bible about um, the giving of the law, that occurs at Mount Sinai, um, outside of Egypt. <clears throat> if you go to the Greeks, Mount Olympus, that's the home of the Greek gods. And if you go to the Middle East, which is quite uh, distressing at the moment, Mount Zion is the location where they built the Jerusalem temple. So here's a question when we get to Matthew 28. Why is it that Jesus calls his disciples to a mountain that's 120 kilometres away from where his death and his uh, resurrection and his whole, most of his ministry have happened? So we think it's this mountain. Mount Arbel, but no one's really that sure, but it certainly has a spectacular view. But what's the significance of that location? Well, um, this is where Jesus started off his ministry in Matthew's Gospel. He selected his team from here. This is where he delivered probably what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. It's where it all began. And Matthew the Gospel of Matthew returns to the place where it all started. And Matthew's Gospel wouldn't be complete unless it went back to this original setting. So I hope you can see this is a highly charged place. But more than the location, what makes the Great Commission, as we've come to call it, great? I want to outline four things that make it great today. And the first is who gives it, the second, who gets it. The third is how we do it. And the fourth is who goes with us. Who gives it, who gets it, how we do it, and who goes with us. So, who gives it? In verse 18, Jesus says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, the original sense of this, these words are, all authority and power has just been given to me now, at this point in time. 
All through Jesus' life, he displayed his power. If you go to chapter 8 of Matthew's Gospel, he has power over demons. In chapter 9, you go, and he's got power to forgive people's sins. And now that authority unfurls all the way to its natural endpoint, where now he says he has all authority, he's a resurrected Christ standing there, and he has power over death. Death is no longer welded to sin, and the resurrected Christ is not some corpse that's been revived only to do his dying all over again another day. He's not some Bradmanesque sort of first century equivalent whose memory inspires generations to come. He is not even the experience in the disciples' lives of collective power of positive thinking. This is not the end of Matthew's story. It's the end of God's great big plan, patient and enduring project to take finite creatures like you and I and restore us to an eternal and glorious state. So what the disciples are struggling with when they see Jesus on top of this mountain is they're seeing a transformed person for the first time in their lives. The resurrected Christ, new, glorified body whose natural powers and processes of decay have been arrested forever. It's absolutely the most unique point in cosmic history that they share at this point. Christ is alive, he's real, he's physical, he's tangible, and now he says, all authority has been given to me. It's not some power that he's ripped off other people It belongs to him. And in fact, Matthew 28 is like an enthronement ceremony, which we saw uh, with uh, King Charles this year during his ceremony, but probably remember and recollect more Queen Elizabeth at this point. And at that enthronement ceremony, there's a formal declaration and transfer of any power previously held in the hands of others. So this power gets conferred on Jesus now, by God, and it's firmly in Jesus' hand. And what makes this commission great is the truckload of authority that's coming behind his words at this particular point in time. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. No one, nothing falls outside the gamut of this power. And it echoes Philippians 2 verses 9 to 11 that says, therefore God has highly exalted him above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue can declare that he is Lord. So that's who gives it. And it's upon that incredible hinge that he goes on and gives his followers their mission. Because he has all authority, he says... You are to go and make disciples of all the nations. And Matthew's referring to Galilee as belonging to the Gentiles throughout his gospel. And in fact, he's only re-quoting Isaiah, the prophet, who said, By the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And to those who were sitting in the land and the shadow of death, upon them a light has dawned. So up until this commissioning point in Matthew's Gospel, um, the mission was limited to the Jews. 
You can find that in chapter 10, verse 5 of Matthew. But now that mission, is the, 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 the curtains are drawn back and now it becomes universal in its scope. It's all nations. And it's not the great recommendation. It's not the great suggestion. It's Jesus' final charge in his resurrected state. Go reach people who don't know me. This great commission is the response of obedience to people who have encountered a risen Christ. And note the depth of it, not just the scope. I mean, Jesus doesn't say to them, um, you know, get, get people across the line and splash a bit of water on them. He says, make disciples of people. Think about how he did that with his own disciples throughout Matthew's gospel. And as that, he, he had his work cut out for him, knocking those disciples into shape. A lot of blindness, misunderstanding, failure, pride, sin. If you're in the business of making disciples of people, you will know that it's the most amazing thing in the world to be part of. It'll set your heart aflutter just seeing what's going on in other people's lives, but it's also the most messy thing you'll ever be part of. Because sin is messy and people take time to be sanctified. But now, Jesus says, the disciples, you followed me, now you've got to become disciplers. They must do what Jesus did with them. And the catalyst for making disciples out of the nations has to be the resurrection here. Nothing else could drive them. What else could have motivated the early church and catapulted it into mission? Because Jesus has all authority, he can now give Christians their marching orders. And in its strictest sense, a missionary is not someone who crosses the sea, but someone who sees the cross. That's a real missionary. Someone who doesn't just cross the sea, but someone who sees the cross. He doesn't say to these disciples, look, I've got a little show going here and it's going quite well. Just don't muck it up. Keep it going. You know, maintain what I've set up here. He gives them an extraordinary mandate to make disciples of all types of human beings, teaching them to obey everything that he had commanded. Years ago now, I was part of a planning group that organised John Stott to come to Adelaide. And uh, he was doing a tour around Australia. And um, for those of you who don't know him, he's one of the great commentators of the Bible and um, evangelists, really, um, and long, long been dead now. But John Stott, on that night, I never forget it, he uttered a response to a question about pluralism which is really, you know, there's so many different gods, how do you answer that question as a Christian? And this was his answer, which I didn't forget. He said, mission is not an impertinent interference in other people's lives. It is the unavoidable deduction from the lordship of Jesus Christ. Mission is not the impertinent interference in other people's lives. Do you feel that pressure sometimes to think that that's what you're doing when you start talking about Jesus? It's not impertinent interference into other people's lives. It's the logical deduction of realising that he's the Lord because of his resurrected state now. 
One of the saddest things I observe is the longer that a person is a Christian, the more their circle of people who don't know Jesus shrinks. I have to work really, really hard in my own life as a minister, you know, because my whole world collapses into the congregation I'm looking after. So I've had to work actively against that to know people outside the church. And my wife and I have certainly had that goal with our children as well. And the reason behind that is we don't want our kids to grow up in a monastery. We want them to understand the Great Commission. The Great Commission will call you beyond your comfort zone. It'll take you to people who are not like you. It'll take you out into territory that's not nicely pegged out. The spread of the gospel is actually one of the primary indicators that you've got that Jesus is Lord of your life. And you live under that conviction. So that's who's giving it. The whole world is fair game to receive it. So if that's who gives it and that's who's getting it, how do we actually do it? How do we do it? Do you know, even as God is narrowing down his blessings to one nation, one tribe, one man, Abraham, in Genesis 12, he's still got his eye on the whole of humanity. Listen to this promise or have a look at it. I'll make you into a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great. You'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The Old Testament shows us how that promise gets unfurled from Genesis 12. The Jews become this sort of attractional and magnetic community that the nations want to come in, they're curious, and they want to find out more about the living God. And that strategy is shown to us if you read the Psalms and also in the prophets. So, for example, Zechariah 8, verse 22, and many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty and to entreat him. So you've got this, you've got this strategy of set up in Genesis of the nations coming to find out about God from the only people who have it, which is the Jews. Now, Johannes Blau, the secretary of the Netherlands Missionary Council, wrote a game-changer of a book in 1974 called The Missionary Nature of the Church. And it will reshape your understanding of mission. And I heard about it three or four times from different speakers over years before I went out and got the book and had a look at it myself. But he observes that that Old Testament missional model is what he calls the centripetal force. For those of you who are engineers, that's the idea of pulling you towards the centre and compelling the nations to come in and meet God. He says that when you get to Jesus' death and resurrection, this is the huge turning point where largely this force gets reversed and it now becomes centrifugal and it heads off in the other direction. So instead of saying, come, come to us and find out about God, now largely, not completely, but largely, it's now go out to them and talk to them about God. And you see that in the activity of the early church in the book of Acts, and I'm sure you will over the coming weeks as you look at that book.
But I tell you what, if you were a good Jew who turned Christian in the first century and you sat around near the temple and you waited for the nations to come to you, you'd be waiting forever because God's strategy had changed in how he was reaching people. In some ways, I think the present-day church can sometimes reflect an Old Testament approach to mission. You know, the sort of, if you build it, they will come. And look, that is true for some people. I mean, some people God is working away at and his spirit is moving in them and they find us. But I don't think it's the dominant strategy anymore. God's people must go out into the world. It's a centrifugal force and it's the dominant model in the book of Acts. Yet we find it hard as churches and individuals to live that missional life scattered out in the world. Why? Why? Why is the attractional model easier to lean into? Well, you know, if you bring people here, and excuse me if you're a guest here today because we're talking about how we try and look after you, but if, if you bring a guest here, this is your turf. You know where to sit. You know what to do in this place. You know when to stand or sit. It's comfortable for you. If your guest has a perplexing question about Christianity and you think, oh my goodness, I don't know anything about this, you've got people here. You've got Steve and you've got Duncan when he's not sick. You've got, you've got, you've got leaders around here and people, experienced Christians that you can, you know, palm them off to, to talk to about their hard questions. The other thing is, what if you fold out there in the world? What if you lose your saltiness and you let down the side? I think workplace mission, for example, it's entirely different for me as a minister who'd worked with a congregation because now I'm trying to equip people when they're scattered, when they're out in the hurly-burly of the world. But even for a ministry like that, which has a good strategy that it's using. We can still rely on our public events like we're going to do next Tuesday night to sort of pin all our hopes on them. Now, it's fantastic to do events. But I don't know whether I want to be an event-driven church or ministry at the end of the day. Those things are great, but they work far better when they're part of a wider, centrifugal, missional strategy that sees most Christians scattered for most of their lives. Why, what does this church look like? Here's a good question for you. What does this church look like when you leave here and go and scatter through the week into all your various places and relationships? If you want to read more on this, there's a lay person called Andrew Scott who wrote a book called Scatter a couple of years back. And he observes that even if you have a very quick glance over the book of Acts, it demonstrates that Christians infected the world with the good news of Jesus like a spreading pandemic. And if you go on and look at church history, for the first 300 years, within 300 years, Christians had turned the Roman Empire upside down. How? Well, he says... This was not simply done by a bunch of energetic preachers and missionaries holding gospel events. 
It was done by the witness of people who lived next door to or worked alongside those who did not know Jesus. These people were business owners, labourers, fathers, mothers, storekeepers, merchants, carpenters, bureaucrats, officials, soldiers, landlords, living out their Christian lives in these communities into which God had scattered them. God's people were scattered across every strata of society, from slave to king. Why, when it comes to the great news of Jesus, do so many Christians operate like they're in a self-imposed lockdown? As a kid, I have to tell you, I was not good at ball sports. Well, I'm still, still not good at ball sports. But anyway, I think it's a hand-eye coordination thing. But when I had children and my son went to his first soccer game at eight years of age, I was determined to be there and to cheer him on. But even for someone like me, I could see that there was a problem with the eight-year-olds on the soccer field. Even for me. There was lots of energy. There was lots of activity expended and resources deployed. But at the end of the day, there wasn't a great deal of progress (laughs) and uh, getting to the goals. And that's because both teams sort of got together. Listen to this, kids, because this would be the absolute game changer for your soccer game. Um, The kids on both sides would all bunch together and they would go around following the ball around like this, like a giant amoeba. Christians have been told to spread out in Matthew 28. But they often bunch together in a safety in numbers sort of strategy. But, you know, do you need to take up your position? Do you need to take up and own your territory where God's put you and spread the fame of Jesus where he's uniquely placed you. I want you to sit with two uncomfortable questions just for a few moments. I think you owe it to yourself and you certainly owe it to God. And here are the questions. What does being scattered potentially look like for me week after week? You know, in my life. What does it look like for me to be scattered? as a Christian? And secondly, what are some immediate things that I could do right now that could help me to spread out rather than always clump together with other Christians? I'm not against Christian fellowship. I'm just saying, when are you out in the world and can you do a little more here to think about consciously being in the world? In the Great Commission, Jesus reinterprets the creation mandate. You know, be fruitful and multiply. What he says, in effect, here is scatter. Go and make little reflectors of God's image across the face of the whole earth. Now, after outlining this overwhelming task to reach the world, Jesus says in verse 20, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, that promise is not just a little warm fuzzy, it's an essential component for a supernatural task. And the book of Acts records the comments of non-believers who watch Christians 
and are amazed at the confidence of these early disciples. Despite them being untrained and despite them being uneducated. Yet what's the thing they notice most? You can find it in Acts chapter 4 verse 13. They say, these people have been with Jesus. That's what they notice. Now what you need to realise when you're out in the world is people are not looking for you to be Jesus. They just need to see that you've been with him. That you've been with him. And that promise that he'll be with you goes into hostile workplaces, difficult family relationships, neighbourhood tensions, you name it. This Jesus, he's on commission with you. He's collaborating. He's not going to leave you like a shag on a rock to work it out on your own. That's enormous relief. He's always with us. Wherever you take the message of the Christian hope, you're promised Jesus' presence in the person of the Holy Spirit there with you. There's not a room. There's not an office. There's not a home. There's not a school. There's not a building that you could walk into where Jesus is not already Lord. The ability to implement this mission hangs on him being alive and present and resurrected. And that promise stretches from the first century to the close of the age. It fills the space between now and when Jesus comes back. It reminds us that this commission has a use-by date. I mean, in heaven, there will be no more apologetic book clubs. There will no, be no more training sessions on evangelism. There will be no more courses, no more beach missions. That time will be over. The Great Commission will close at that point. This is a promise not just to the first disciples but to all disciples till the end of human history. I am with you. It's not retracted. So Jesus came to them and he said, Therefore, go and make, all, make disciples of all the nations. Well, did they listen? Did they do it? <laughs> Absolutely. All the way down through history, Christians have taken this mantle of the Great Commission on their shoulders and taken it seriously. Thank God for Christians who have spread the gospel so that it could eventually reach me and you. I read this commissioning and I can't evade the charge. Now, I can't palm this off onto the keen beans, you know, the missionaries, the evangelists. I can't outsource it. This is my commission. This is your commission. Matthew is urging his readers of this gospel to move from being passengers and spectators into players. Think about where you'll be tomorrow. How is going and making disciples of all the nations going to be part of that? Because it's your commission.
What makes this commission great is who gives it. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, and it's now placed in the hands of the only one who can reverse the decay of humanity that we look at day after day. Who gets it? Make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. That's all sorts of people, all types. A task that will take you well beyond your comfort zone. I popped in at Macca's on the way because I didn't have breakfast and I was sitting there going through this talk and then a whole crew of guys came in and sat right down next to me, a group of about 12 and were really loud and I was trying to go through this talk so, and I thought, I have to love them, Lord. All types. Who gets it? How do we do it? Mission is largely centrifugal. It's pushing out. What does being scattered look like for me? If you're a worker, oh my goodness, Engage Work Faith wants to help you. We don't care if you're not up in the city. We want to help you in scattered mode. As a church, how can you keep spreading out and reaching people? And finally, who goes with us? He's always with you. He goes into those dark corners of our world where you go, shining the light of the gospel where it's desperately needed. You have a great commission because of who gives it, who's going to get it, how you do it, who goes with you. Do it. Do it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the gravity and the turning point of the Great Commission in Matthew's Gospel. Thank you for what makes it great. Help us to rethink what it's like to do mission when we're scattered. And help us to take up the challenge of owning our part of that mission handed down to us. Amen.